At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Good afternoon. Welcome to SOLIDCAST number 21, brought to you courtesy of Jocko Willink Productions and SOLID Chronicles. Today we're going to turn to uh, On the Ground for one of the more unique missions during the eight-year secret war. And this story has like two stories on one mission. That is, uh, as we unfold here, we hope you enjoy it. We'll start with, a, this was in 1969 at CCN. Lynn Black was the 1-0 of RT Idaho at that time. And it was at night. In fact, around midnight, when Lynn Black and his team was woken to go for a bright light. And the bright light was a mission when a team was in trouble to send another team in. And so Lynn Black was designated for that. And he learned that there had been a 28-man hatchet force that had been hit while moving toward a POW camp. This was an American POW camp. And the mission of that hatchet force was to go and to relieve, find any Americans in that camp. During the time on the ground, the team got ambushed. They inflicted heavy casualties and the mission had to be terminated. Then at that point, during the efforts to extract the survivors, a rescue helicopter had been brought down by heavy gunfire. There were at least six men on the ground, perhaps more, who needed help. They needed it badly. Black and his team were being asked to run a bright light in night, and they were asked to go in ASAP. Also, to add to the story, they were being asked to repel in to find the team. The team that was on the ground was a hatchet force. This hatchet force was a platoon, had 24 indigenous forces, soldiers uh, that were on it, and four U.S. Green Berets, led by Lieutenant David Gordon. And today, we're joined by Dave. Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> well, we're glad to have you. This is one of those uh, many SOG stories that... Um, on folds, and I kind of gave it a, a quick thumbnail to set the stage for, to me, it was one of those most amazing stories uh, of our t of that SOG period. So this is October 69. The fact that they had intel on a POW camp, and they sent in one platoon, your platoon, to go find it. And uh, just so we get down to some of the nitty-gritty quick, initially they even put you in at the wrong location you figured out they, they inserted you in the wrong location. They had to come back, 
pick up your 28-man force, put it down into the correct target area, which with that kind of helicopter activity, automatically the NVA is extra on alert. So you're on the ground, and so when you're actually in the target, you're able to move for a day or two and, and with minimal contact or anything, but you're moving towards your objective, which was the American POW camp, right? That, yeah, it was a suspected American POW camp. Um, it Obviously, the mission didn't start out in the, in, the, in, the, in the greatest thing. I mean, it did start out. We were briefed. We had done our training. We'd done our map recons. We weren't able to get out to where the area was, some of it have, having to do with the weather during that time frame uh, is always not the best. And that's what created some of our problem once they insert us. We end up staying at the uh, launch site for a day before they could find a hole in the clouds to just to put us in initially. And then they put us in in the wrong location, as you indicated. <laughs> well, it was, here I am, uh, uh, you know, not my first mission, but I'm still a, a green lieutenant. And I'm on the ground trying to figure out where I am once they put me on the ground. And, and the map's just not lining up with the terrain. <laughs> just a little bit, maybe, but not very much. <laughs> and uh, and so we're moving, and I'm still trying to line us up, but I'm figuring, I know the directions we're supposed to go, so I'm starting to head that somewhat that direction. Uh, and then we ran smack dab into a uh, an abandoned base camp, NVA base camp. I mean, there were bunkers, there were there were trails, there were signs even. Wow. And so we moved away from that and found a place where we could RON for the night uh, and try to figure out next day what, what we were going to do. Uh, Covey, we'd already given Covey the, uh, uh, the okay, we were okay on the ground. So they were gone. So we're just on our own. Uh, and so that's what started out this uh, episode, you might say, or two of them. Indeed. So, um, but the second day you were on the ridge line, so you're able to observe from that ridge line, and then you were planning the next, the third day of the mission was to move, but things changed. Well, yeah, and and actually, it was two. That first day we were we set up, and all night long we could see across the distance to the to the west. We could see uh, moving lights moving on the, on the roads and stuff from trucks, and we weren't going to try to call in airstrikes, which probably wouldn't have been the great idea. It didn't happen. Uh, but no, there was nothing available. And we were at max range, theoretically, at the G, uh, for the 175s. And the 175s were notorious <clears throat> for not not hitting their targets correctly. At max range. At max range, especially when you're on the, on the gun, gun target line. So we didn't. We just spent the night uh, there. We got up the next morning and moved or darted a move, and Covey come in for a, for a welfare check and couldn't find us where we were supposed to be. So we finally vectored him in, and next thing I heard as I, I, I wrote up in my stories was basically, oh, shit, <laughs> you're not where you're supposed to be. I says, I'm where you put me. And they, immediately he did some, you know, working with the headquarters, uh, with communications and says, oh, we're going to pick you up and put you in the right spot. You're not in the right spot. You're not even on the map. And so they did that. And that's what caused, as you said, a lot of helicopter work in an area where we're not, you know, not normally there. Um, I'm sure it alerted a lot of folks. Indeed. And then they dropped us in and we moved all that next, that second day 
we moved until we found the spot uh, that, that you line? just talked to the one this yeah the ridge line where we ro in for that night and then at what point did you get your first enemy contact we got it early in the morning we had uh we'd set up set up perimeters my interpreter comes to me and says buku vc there we hear them on the radios apparently they'd picked up our our call our frequency and they were talking on our frequency and my interpreter was very concerned about it obviously and so was i so we set up a little extra perimeter uh security uh and we went to 50 percent and we got up the next morning quietly got ourselves got everybody ready to go set up my perimeter uh selected my point people uh and they, we started out and we started down the ridge line and we didn't get 50 they didn't get 50 to maybe 75 feet and then and they opened up on them uh with with automatic weapons fire and rpgs into them and into the trees above us right and so everything was put at a stop at that point and that was about 7 6 37 in the morning no kidding so then at that point the mission turns from going to find an american pow camp where the communists hold our people to survival Exactly. Uh, protect what, I, what we had, try to figure out what we were going to do, get our, get our security and get us out of there. We, we called in and there was no break contact, continue mission. We had dead and wounded. Uh, we had to get out of there. So to advance into the, the narrative where we get your personal experience, during the day, you're able to get your wounded and KIAs out. They're able to get lifted out by helicopter. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, you determine that the mission is done. So then you begin to reduce the number of people from your platoon. They get extracted. And then at some point, get down to the last, you had your last remaining content. You had uh, your final helicopter, which was you. And the one prior to you, those were the last two helicopters that left. The second one left, it took pretty heavy gunfire. Yeah, we, the, the second one, we really took a heavy gunfire. Um, kind of the day uh, was, a, was a long, long day. The first to get the wounded out, the serious wounded out, they came in with jungle penetrator and dropped down, and we got our, our serious wounded out. Then we had, uh, trying to figure the counts here, uh, we went from 28 to 24, and then we cut an LZ it was the next thing we were trying to do was cut an LZ with what we had because we were we were in uh, double triple canopy so we cut what we could for an LZ and then we started extractions later late that afternoon uh, the first uh, of the of the four helicopters that were going to need to extract us all out of there came in got away okay and we're talking all UEs here at this point these are all UEs at this point you're right yeah UEs at this point the 101st was, was, was pulling us out and we had they had their gun support as they as they normally do, um, and we'd hear a little gunfire here and there, not from them but from other. So the first aircraft came in, pulled out my first group of people, which was which was my dead and wounded, uh, uh, not not serious wounded, but my and, and the few casualties we had. Then the second one came in. Uh, I picked up and I, I put an American on each aircraft. Uh, with my one of my sergeants and it pulled out and, and started pulling away and it took gunfire and it actually damaged the aircraft and wounded people in the aircraft so they it went down uh, a ways away 
And so the next part of the mission for the support was to take care of that aircraft, get the crew and, 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 and any of the wounded out. And I found out through Covey that uh, my American had been severely wounded with a couple of rounds in the torso. But they took care of that. Well, next it was try to get us out. Well, by then it started getting dark. And so we needed, I had 12 people left on the ground. Uh, myself, Sergeant Schultz. And you had 10 other little people with you. And so exactly. the first helicopter came in. Uh, you had, of the 12, you had two choppers that are going to come in. Right. And you told Schultz, get on the helicopter with the brew. I'll be leaving on the last helicopter. It would be me and some of my indige. Right. And so as the second, as that first of the two helicopters lifted off where Schultz was supposed to be on it, that helicopter lifted off. And you're looking at the helicopter. And as it lifts off, who's standing on the other side? Sergeant Schultz is standing on the other side. <laughs> Smiling at you. And, he, he, and I, I pointed my finger at him, and I, I, I was not. <laughs> you could tell I wasn't happy. And he goes like this, which told me. And for our listeners, you're putting your hands together, which we're together. Yeah, fingers, two fingers together, and and that's saying to me, we're in this together. Yep, side by side. So he saved. He stayed back, and he saved two of the yards. Right. He threw two on in his place, so that left us with uh, five on the ground as opposed to six because I had split. the the team up so or what we had left so we had full throughout 360 security right so that bird got off that he was supposed to be on got off okay and they i think they took some fire as they pulled away from the area then the second bird was coming in to pick us up and we were trying to talk it down because this was not a clean lz uh, you, you you had enough trees and there was danger of, of, of blade strikes. So they kind of had to come in and jockey their way in and they had to come straight, almost straight down, go uh, move vertically or horizontally a little bit and then come vertically down and to get down close enough for us to be able to get on the aircraft. Well, I was starting to talk it down and the, and the, and the pilot, and right, he says, my crew chief will talk me down. He, 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 he'll understand better. Fine. He talks them down. We get down and we get to where we get everybody on. Uh, Sergeant Schultz had jumped on everybody. And I don't know, I had this philosophy, right or wrong. I was always first in, last out. That just was me. Well, you're the team leader. Yeah. But, yeah you're uh, the classic that's the way it's team supposed leader. to be. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So all of a sudden, the whole front, whole world opened up the, to, the, to the front of the helicopter. And I just, it was start, he, he, the pilot, I don't know if he did it out of instinct or whatever. He just started uh, pulling collective and started lifting off. I jumped. I had literally had to jump for the helicopter. <laughs> I wrapped my my left arm around the uh, there's a support pole bar. support right. pole yeah. between the door gunner and the and, and the crew and the and the and the cargo area wrapped around there and my knees were on the skid. I, I, I pulled myself up and put my knees on the skid. Right, and we were coming out. We were lifting out, and you're firing I, with your car fifteen. I'm firing. Right yeah, now. I've got my car fifteen. I'm firing. The door gunners are firing. Uh, I'm sure they were firing from the other side too, the other side of the aircraft. And uh, we lifted out. We actually cleared the trees on the LZ, and all of a sudden we started drifting uh, to the left uh, as as you look at the helicopter, and uh, you know look to the front of the helicopter. And I figured 
initially my thoughts were, well, we've taken gunfire. What he's trying to do is doing a combination of evasive uh, maneuver and uh, trying to gain speed because right. we were pretty good altitude. Get transitional and lift tra- out. Yeah, get lift out of it, whatever it's called. <clears throat> and so I figured that drift was okay. And then all of a sudden I realized even though it was dark, you could just see enough of because of everything that was going on. We weren't just drifting. We were going down. And uh, that I remember that. Uh, well, we're going know, you, down. I've got your note yeah. on that where you say, quickly, however, I realized we were out of control and we were going down. Suddenly, the main rotor hit trees on the left side and flipped right with such force that I lost my grip on the pole. I was free falling backwards. Yes. And now's where it gets a little dicey. The helicopter was following me, crashing through the trees. I was sure it was going to land right on top of me. I fell far enough that I had time to actually say to myself, David, you blew it this time. That's true. <laughs> I remember that. It was like it's like you see in movies where you see that slow motion. Oh yeah, the adrenaline event opening up before you know, just 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 slow motion as you're falling or or anything, uh, and and then I hit the ground and and and, and I hit the ground harder than anything ever. You know, wow, I can't imagine. And, and then the helicopter just crashes all around me. My first instinct. Uh, right or wrong my first instinct was to get as far away from the helicopter as I could and get some cover because I thought you know I didn't know was it going to catch on fire was going to blow what was going to do well and just for the record that helicopter crashed right behind you impacting only a few feet away and to this day you still don't know how that helicopter missed you as you're both falling I don't know and and the blades didn't hit no I mean I don't know how I didn't get hit by the air, by the aircraft, and I so at that point things. you realize you had a problem because some of your notes on this are just so graphic. You wrote, "I tried to move, but my body wasn't responding. I hurt real bad all over. I needed to get away from the helicopter, like you said. Mm-hmm. I managed to get loose from my ruck, grab my car fifteen, and dragged myself into nearby brush and trees." But you're lucky the helicopter didn't explode. I was able to find I was able to find anything definite about your injuries. I just felt mangled, and it really hurt to breathe, or even move. Yeah, that's when I gave myself. I carried morphine because uh, I also was a, a, trained as a medic, and I and I carried the morphine on the team. Uh, I gave myself a Soretta morphine to try to calm myself, try to see where I was going to be. Um, and then my next instinct after, after feeling you know, that I was alive, my next instinct <laughs> was, was to, was to check on the, the crew because the helicopter hadn't exploded. There was some little fires around, but I wanted to check. I wanted to check on my men. Sure. So I dragged myself and, and I could do a little bit better with the morphine. I, I got myself back to the helicopter and in the dark, tried to, because I didn't want to turn on any lights. I didn't know what was around us. And I tried my best to, to check on everybody. And everybody I checked on was, was gone. They were they were dead, shot up. Um, the pilots were, I couldn't, 
I had to check on them from the back because that, that, that was all shot up. The whole front end was shot up. And I didn't find anybody alive, so I crawled back to my, my, my secure position. Right. And I then got a hold of, I, I then pulled out my ERC-10 and a survival radio. It was a small, small survival radio that uh, once you, you, you key it, it just opens up the world to, for communication. At, at what we had at that had, time, you had Covey there, so he could respond right away. Yeah, so Covey responded right away because uh, they didn't know. And then I told them what I felt the situation was, and they said, "Well, where are you located?" And I says, "Well, okay, I'll shoot off a pen flare." So I shot off a pen flare, so they knew where I was in relationship to the helicopter, the crash. And uh, then that leads to another part of the story. Absolutely, because uh, you're by yourself. Yeah. And then you heard some movement over time, and then I heard some movement coming from the aircraft, or, or somewhat in the direction of the aircraft. I heard this movement, and uh, I figured, well, no, they're, they're 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 searching for me, the the enemy, the NVA sure. or the VC were searching. So you turned for your me. radio off, get your Car 15 on full automatic, yep. and you're ready. I was going to go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. If, uh, if that's what it was, I wasn't going to go by myself. And this voice calls out in this deep southern drawl. And, 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 and two things happened. Number one, I was happy to hear there was an American alive. Yeah. Because I didn't find anybody alive. And it was safety for him because as he deep southern draw told me right then and there, I had an American, a, a friendly, yeah. not even just an American, a friendly. And uh, it saved his life because I was ready to shoot it up. Um, and it turns out that the, the, the door gunner and the crew chief had managed to survive the crash because they're kind of capsulated in their back area in the aircraft. Right. And they they had a they had a couple of minor wounds uh, from the crash itself. And they had they had gotten away while I was trying to recover myself. They had moved to the other side of the helicopter into the jungle. Uh, and when they saw the pen flare, they they realized it was, you know, some help maybe or somebody else alive. So they were moving to me uh, to where the pen flare was fired from to, uh, to yeah, see what was going on. And go back to your note too, getting into your head a little bit. I was emotionally relieved and I was determined to get us out. I had a radio, you had contact with Covey and a way to get us home. Then they told me there was another survivor. So you were able to go back, they were able to go back and find a brew, one of your Montagnard tribe yes. members who's a member of your hatchet force. Yeah. Apparently had been thrown to the other side of the helicopter, but unfortunately had a had a had a broken leg. We're not sure, you know, at that point I, I can speculate or was told it was a femur, uh, from what the medic had had described. I mean, what I found out through other resources that it was apparently a broken femur. So they had to they had to almost carry him. He had a broken leg. I think we'll just leave it at that. Uh, had to carry him while they were trying to help me. Uh, uh, so we now needed to get out of there. And that's when they called to have uh, the, the helicopters come in with, uh, with, with strings, with ropes to drop down to lift us out of there. And when we're at night now. Uh, oh, yeah. We're uh, at dark. And also, I think you should tell us and our audience, you didn't know it then, but today 
you know you had how many broken vertebrae and other what else was broken? Well, you, you had a quote broken back. Yes, that's a medically defined broken back. You're on the ground, giving yourself morphine. You're going to give yourself a second syret here mm-hmm. in a moment. But let us know what the injuries were that you found out <laughs> after you survived this ordeal. Well, I found out. Uh, I found out then, uh, as far as. Uh, some the injuries was I had uh, L three four and five and my back were crushed. Um, I eventually actually lost an inch in height. I have found I've had other ancillary injuries. The contusions on my body were just unbelievable. And that's why I hurt so bad all over. Um, and they were probably what hurt worse at first because that was you know realizing I didn't realize about the back. I've also found out that I have uh, fractures now on my upper vertebrae that they never found out about because they didn't really do MRIs in that area then. Right. Uh, so it, and then I've had surgeries due to the injuries that have been a, a, mostly a, a skeletal or, or orthopedic injuries that have developed from that that actual sure. fall. Okay. So. But I just thought we, that's an important context because well, thank you. you're on the ground with a broken back trying to do what you're just describing here. You're able to get to your brew working with the crew chief and the door gunner. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, what is not stated here was on that crash, we lost Sergeant Schultz. Yes. And that's just one of those incredible moments where he stayed there to be with you side by side and that crash had a tragic turn to it. And then also... During that time, uh, Covey, because he knew exactly where you are, you were able to pinpoint your location. Covey was working air assets. Yes. They had Spooky there covering you, uh, doing uh, going around enemy, to keeping the enemy busy while you're just trying to survive there on the ground. And yes. I think that um, at that point, he calls back, oh, then they try to come in one more time with a helicopter with ropes. Right. And one of the extraction methods, the helicopter hovers, they can't land, they throw ropes down to you. In this case, they threw ropes that were 100 feet long, but you're in double, triple canopy, and you're going through the ordeal of being on the ground, and the ropes are not long enough. No, they aren't. And we tried moving to, we moved, tried moving also to, to other locations where maybe they could get closer into the trees and they couldn't. They just couldn't. So now we're talking. And I think, let me interrupt for a second. Go ahead. You're being very modest here. These two guys are picking you up with your broken back. You're in triple canopy with a brew who's been wounded. And you're trying to move through the jungle to get to a better height. Yeah. And actually, they were carrying a brew. <laughs> just, just so we understand you know, this. <laughs> I, I had found something I could use to, for kind of a crutch. And I was just hobbling along. Morphine had finally kicked in. And I think I could move better, you know. You know, better living through chemistry. Indeed. Uh, <laughs> so, and then they we decided that it wasn't going to happen, and, and the helicopters were losing uh, uh, the time they needed to get refueled. So they had to go back and and uh, re, re, restring the aircraft. And I think there were Hueys at the first time, and we've talked about this. We've been able to come up, you know, decipher some of the things that went on, uh, you know, with the fog of war. Uh, but at that point, when they said they couldn't, uh, that's when uh, 
Lynn's team gets notified that yeah Covey goes back and the, so um, uh, RT Idaho was on standby mm-hmm. and uh, they were on standby for another mission but they were told that they had a, a bright light and just for the record now running a bright light at night is exponentially increased the inherent risk normally associated with the most dangerous of SOG missions and just for good luck the brass told Idaho to repel into the target. When they reached the uh, launch site, Lynn got briefed. They had a medic. Uh, Ron Williams was uh, added to the team because they knew that you all had injured personnel on the ground. You being <laughs> the team leader, duly injured, and nobody know how knew how severe your injuries were. And with that, uh, Lynn Black launched, and uh, we learned later that the helicopter pilot was Captain On, who flew that mission. Mm-hmm. And he's one of our legendary King Bee pilots. Yeah. And he was, uh, you know, they thought they were going to be uh, re- repelling into the target. So while they're flying out, they're tying the ropes down. But um, Captain On was able to maneuver the, the King Bee into the LZ area near the crashed helicopter so Lynn could get his six-man team on the ground. Mm-hmm. So it was Lynn Black with four indigenous troop members and the medic. They get on the ground, and um, so you're aware of them being on the ground, but when they're there, they're, it's dark. There is some light that comes up from the crash site because there's still some burns that are going on according to what uh, what Lynn had seen at the site. So at some point, um, Lynn moves through the jungle. He leaves a couple people at the helicopter and then moves north of this of the crashed helicopter. And are you aware that they're on the ground by now? Or at any point, does the covey or somebody say to you, hey, the guys are on the ground? How'd that go? Yes, I, I was alerted that they were on the ground, and we were going to try the link-up. And, of course, that in itself, even in, in the best of conditions, <laughs> linking up in the uh, middle of two the night. forces in the middle of the—then then being in the middle of the night, I mean, you've got— Everything from the high adrenaline from being in, in, in combat to being dark and everything else, we somehow managed to link up without shooting each other up. And that was that was uh, that in itself was great. And of course, I was I was so happy to see Lynn and them and knowing I was probably going to get out. That I think I, I think the first thing I did was give him a big hug. Uh, well, again, also, you didn't know the name of the team or anybody. You just I did not. There's Americans coming towards you. That's right. And the only thing I knew as we were doing it is I knew that the team leader had the code name Blackjack. That's all I knew for a very, very, very long time. And, we, uh, and you, John, uh, you have been instrumental in us actually getting back together and, you know 30 34 <laughs> years later uh we actually i actually be able to meet the, the person who led the team that rescued me uh but it, that was that was uh a really traumatic time to try to find us and then then me to find them uh, uh high intensity uh again but we did it Yo. and uh thanks everybody they got me out but uh, well, here's another even thing. getting out wasn't the greatest action either. Oh, I know. We get to that not so great action in a few minutes. But there's another angle to this, which um, I came I came back to CCN a few days after this incident, mm-hmm. 
And so I got back on Idaho. And the first night I'm there, Lynn talked about this mission. And some of the things he talked about, he later wrote down. And he talked about searching for the survivors and that there are edges of glowing pools of light provided by the subsiding fuel and oil fire, still from the crash site. And then he was like, this is like his feelings from being on the ground looking for you all. He said, suddenly I became aware of moss, insects fluttering up and about, intensifying my awareness of our surroundings even further. So now the three of them, he has his point man, Sal, his counterpart, and he are moving and point, and the interpreter point to another direction. And they're moving away from a firefight, fire light into the inkiness of night. <laughs> it was so dark. Mm-hmm. But you guys had fireflies, which never think about. And it seemed like my contact with fireflies in Laos, they were big suckers. <laughs> and when they lit up, yeah. It wasn't like the little fireflies in America that lit up your hand. Mm-hmm. It was really cool. No. These could light up. You could see people's faces off of these things. Yeah. They're much bigger. <laughs> and Lynn was experiencing that too, trying to come to you. Yeah. And uh, and you had some firefly exposure. Yeah, but I don't remember I don't remember that part of it. I think uh I, I my my focus was on so much other things. Uh I don't remember the fireflies, but that doesn't mean maybe that's why in some cases we could see a little bit better at night, uh, or, or you think you could anyway. You could see well, just that little bitty area. Yeah, but, I, I want to just go back to his thing again, just a little yeah, bit, because this no. is him trying to find you in the middle of Laos, in the middle of the night, enemy around, Spooky's firing, Covey's talking to both of you, and and he's on the ground, and his he said the three of us, are in the undergrowth, undergrowth, trying to dodge hovering bugs. There are bats, moths. At one point he was talking and he was talking into the radio and he had to stop because a moth went into his mouth and <laughs> choked him. And then uh, then Lynn says, he write, he's writing about himself, stay focused, concentrate, Blackjack. And this is what he heard. An occasional crackle from the fire snaps us to full readiness, full automatic readiness. Once again, I turn around looking in the direction of the down chopper. No longer can I make it out. He's that deep into the jungle now. We cross over into the netherworld. Unseen forces tugging and pestering us from all points on the compass. The further we make our way into this world, our newly honed night senses, the more we become aware of the small eyes of thousands of animals peering at us between jumbles of leafy branches and barbed vines. Snakes and small furry nocturnal creatures scatter under each footstep. This is like trying to work your way through brer rabbits briar patches blindfolded. <laughs> And so it just goes on. But that is his side yeah. of trying to get to you. Then at some point, they you were able to make contact with we him. We were, you know. Um, through the grace of God, we we actually made contact without any injuries, any more injuries. Or well, anything. and then also, who was flying Covey that night? It was one of our legendary Coveys, yeah. Covey riders. Yeah, I think Pat Watkins was flying yeah. Covey that Mandolin. night. And, and, I, and I found out much later from Pat, just 
the, the, the third side of this story, and that's all of the air support, all that was going on. At uh, night. At night. Um, yeah. And uh, I think he'd come in as a relief because, uh, because it was such a long mission that they had, to, they had to swap out Coveys and Covey riders. Uh, but he just, uh, he, he actually was able to add a lot to my information and knowing what really was going on around me because I, at that point, was focused just on the, on the, getting the four of us out of there. Right. That was my, sure. That, that was where everything had got boiled down to, uh, at that point. Uh, I do remember one, at one point where, you know, talking about the air support, I had left a strobe light on the, on the, on the original LZ because when I jumped for the aircraft, I wasn't going to go back and get a strobe light. Right. And apparently there was a lot of movement after, after the crash on the LZ, uh, the original LZ and Covey comes up and says, is there any, uh, did you leave anybody behind? There's, there's people in a light on the LZ. And I says, no, that's none of us light it up. And And, they did. Oh, they did. They lit it up big. (laughs) Um, this is before the bright light came in. Oh yeah, this was before the bright light. Yeah. This was after I was on the ground. Before we, this was before the fir- actually before the first attempt to pull us out. Um, so there's just a lot of little sideline stories or that that go on around this thing. That uh, this is all you learn. at night. And yeah. This is not. There, there's no night vision, no Mm-mm. infrared vision no. there. And again, had you not let that strobe light they probably would not have been able to accurately direct ground fire to Correct. where you directed it. You probably directed it off of that. Or even see that there were a lot of people on, on there because you know, the strobe light would put out just enough light to see that there were there was the enemy was there. They were covering, they were working over the, the, the site. Indeed. And then uh, looking, uh, just the last time I want to go back to the blackjack side mm-hmm. of this thing, how they're looking for you. <clears throat> And they're not able to make contact. And uh, he's moving, and it, they they thought they heard something. And then at one point, Lynn was, I'm waving my hand in my interpreter's face. I get his intention and retrieve the survival, whispering, this is blackjack over, this is blackjack over, because he had heard somebody, and he said, wasn't sure. And he goes, blackjack Covey, are you ready for extraction? So it was Covey who heard him, not you. Mm-hmm. And so Lynn's trying to deal with this negative mandolin, because that's a code name for yes. Pat Watkins. Stand by. This is Blackjack. We're still looking for the HF survivors, the hatchet force. Blackjack, then on the radio, you came up, according to what Lynn wrote, Blackjack, mm-hmm. we can hear you above us. Mm-hmm. So take it from there. I mean... Well, that that's... And I had forgotten how that had happened till, till Lynn wrote about it. Yeah. Um, and then once we knew where each was, we could move carefully, uh, towards, I moved carefully towards them. Actually, I don't know. Actually, I don't know that for sure. We did move and we did link up and then, and then uh, at that point, the medic is able to work on you and the brew. He's he's ready to assess us. Yeah. Yeah. There wasn't much work they could do on me because nothing was, there was, there was, you know, some, some wounds, but there was nothing sure but the but the biggest problem was of course the brew in my opinion and then uh Lynn calls in through Covey calls in to get us out of there they'd re- they had re uh restrung the, helicopters. restrung the helicopters or set up new helicopters with longer ropes yeah and then that's when 
that's when the whole extraction thing started. Uh, with uh, Lynn took Lynn and his team took charge, uh, and and was able to do everything, and uh, start to get us out of there. And uh, the only thing I remember with Lynn is that uh, he and I had a little bit of discussion. I wanted to send the team, you know, because they could only take out two at a time, uh, and I wanted him to take out the the two Americans. And he said, no, you're going out. <laughs> so I said, okay. It wasn't, no, wouldn't have been my choice, but he was in charge. And, and so what you got to explain too is uh, on your extraction, we had a, uh, a rig that was called the McGuire rig. Right. So at the end of the rope, there was what we called the McGuire rig, which was basically a strap that was hung and it came down about six inches wide. It hung down two, three feet. And then the other side would go up and reattach to to the rope. So it would hang there like a a large seat. Mm -hmm. And then at the top of it, on the left-hand side, I think there was a a strap or a rope that you, people getting extracted could put their hand in and tighten it. Correct. Which you did that day or that night, I mean. Yes. They, 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 they put me in the sling and we before you, they lifted off before we left off oh yeah and it was it was that was just that was what it was it was just a a canvas type seat that just wrapped around your your legs and you were you, you, you your right arm generally went around and grabbed a hold of the the rope or the other part of the seat so you were strapped in because it basically came down in front of you as I described with, with my hands uh, yeah. video it came down kind of in front of you so you wrapped your hand around and grabbed your harness so your the the top of the mcguire rig was between your chest and your arm your left arm went up and they put it in a noose for lack of a better term right. for the latted security well this turned out to be a lifesaver for me and the reason why that was there was just because if somebody got shot became unconscious yes. or in your case when you're finally lifting up there is gunfire at the helicopter lifting you up mm-hmm. and instead of lifting you up above the treetops you become a human pinball in the trees in yeah. the trees and then what happened there well as you're going up i mean this is it, like it, a nightmare compound right uh, what hit it, it happened is it knocked me my seat uh, my butt out of the out of the mcguire rig seat and so i'm essentially hanging by my left arm uh, and telling myself, it ain't going to happen twice. I am not going to go through this again. And so they get, they finally clear, and I'm hanging there, and the medic has has, has, has gone out. Uh, Sergeant Williams has gone out with, he decided to put the brew in his lap, uh, the mountain yard And in you his two lap. are side by side? We're potentially side by side. Uh, and I can't see this. I'm right. at the point of, of... At some point, you may have even passed out. out. yeah. Sure. Uh, uh, I just remember hanging there and telling myself it didn't go. Well, it turns out that Sergeant Williams, had, the medic, had decided to take the brew, put him in his lap, and take him out because he was too small to fit into the Maguire rig, and he's afraid of losing him. And hitting the trees, the, uh, sadly, the, the 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 brew was knocked from his from his grip, and lost him, and he fell to the ground. I did not know this till many years later. I thought we, the four of us, had gotten out. And I found out that the brew didn't make it, uh, and there was no attempt, any possible attempt to rescuing him at that point because we didn't know where we were, uh, you know, later in life. Right. Uh, and 
and it has to be a tough thing for, for Sergeant Williams to have to deal with for all of his life. Yeah, he was an incredible medic. Yeah. But so they get me, they finally, I, they get to an area and, and I think they're low on fuel or something, or they've decided to get, get down on tarmac and get me inside the aircraft. Um, because one of the reasons why is because they, when you have people hanging from ropes, the helicopters take more energy, they burn more right. fuel. And if they can find a spot, they will land. And sometimes it's a rough landing, which it you had. It was a rough landing. And uh, I got drug across the tarmac. I don't know how far. <sighs> and then they got me into the aircraft and got me to the hospital. Uh, and then, you know, all, all, the, all the little things that went on for that, too, which is all, all other stories. So I got bounced around pretty good that night. No kidding. And then uh, <laughs> they were able to extract the uh, crew chief and the door gunner, and then Lynn was able to get the, his team right. out. And we'd come back with some of the finite details later. But for you personally, from there, because part of this whole story, this, like the tertiary side of this thing is they pick you up, take you to a medevac hospital, patch you up then you get on the hospital ship no that's a different story that's a different yeah. story different wound Diff oh my god well take it from there you're picked up after you get in the helicopter they take you where what well they take next? me to 40th med uh uh and they get me in the icu and i'm they're, they're, i'm finally starting to to come around and the next day you know this was at night so that next morning uh they're 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 working on me. They don't know exactly what's what's still what's wrong. They just know that I'm 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 broken and I'm beat up, so to speak. <laughs> Very <You> broken. <laughs> and uh, so I'm, I guess maybe still morphine still in me. I'm I'm decided I'm going to get out of get out of bed and go go to the bathroom, and, and and so I get throw my legs over the edge of the bed and I set myself up on the edge of the, and then and then I couldn't move at all. <laughs> so the nurse comes in. And her name was Rose Nelson. I remember that. Uh, she comes in and she looks at me and she just shakes her head. So she says, you get back into bed. And I says, I can't. <laughs> I can't move. So she gets me back into bed. And, and and I remember she was the ICU nurse and she came in to give me a, a kind of wash me down because we were pretty smelly at that point. And she goes to try to wash me down and she starts and I had I said, you got to stop because your hands feel like 60 grit sandpaper. I can't, I can't take because the, the, apparently all of the bruising and stuff was so bad. So I'm there. And then the next, I don't know if it was that day or the next day I'm laying there and I wake up and I, Oh no, there's a priest leaning over me and I'm not even Catholic. <laughs> and I thought, Oh no, I'm getting my last rites. Yeah. <laughs> so it wasn't. He was coming in just check. He was one of our our <laughs> our, our uh, uh, chaplains coming in to check on me. But I thought for sure in my days that I was in my last rites and it was going to be all over. Right. Uh, you so, going through those things. So keep it right there. Cause I want to get back for a second. Yeah. Because the other side, uh, getting back to Lynn's side of this thing, which is mm -hmm. the recon team side, and. Um, there's two points of it. He had this whole dialogue between you and him that before you finally connected, which went on a lot longer than your side of the story, but you finally did connect. But then when you're getting pulled out on the ropes, he talks about 
the uh, as you're starting to go up, green tracers and rockets light up the midnight sky. So this is what the helicopter pilots and you, the survivors, are witnessing, hanging for dear life. The anti-aircraft fire begins to punctuate the moonless night. The helicopter applies full power to its engine, swinging a ride wide arc in the direction of safety, meaning getting mm-hmm. the hell out of there, heading back to Vietnam. And that is the part of that I didn't why, know about. <laughs> yeah, because you're just hanging on. You're in the middle of the jungle yep. being a human pinball, bouncing off of Mother Nature's trees. And then uh, just before we get back to your story, um, they were able to get out. Again, that team came out on strings. And when they, got, when they came back, the very next morning, that recon team had to repack and go back to get the helicopter and work through all that mission yeah. with no sleep. And uh, just enough food to eat and reload, and they went out and recovered it. So back to your story, which is why we're here. Um, so you're medevaced, then and after the sandpaper, the nurse with the sandpaper hands on your body. What's next? Well, they sent me to uh, Third Field Hospital in Saigon, I think it was, and then uh, from there, uh, they 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 put a cast on me, a body cast. A body cast. Uh, because they they had realized they'd done the X-rays and stuff and realized that I had the, the fractures in the back, um, and then uh, I went to an Air Force. They, they they send you to an Air Force staging hospital. Then I was medevaced from there to Japan to the 249th in Japan. Spent some time there, and then uh, medevaced from there to Letterman General Hospital, uh, which I spent about a week or so there. And they felt I was stable enough. They'd taken the cast off that I was I was put on convalescent leave. And my my parent, my mother, come and picked me up with some <laughs> friends. She they came. She brought up this big big Cadillac. And you're still in the body cast. No, I'm not. I'm out of the body cast. Then I just have bracing on. Really? I had gotten out of the body cast, and we talked a story. But yeah, but you got to tell a lie. Oh, okay. <laughs> I got to we when I got to Letterman, I was not happy about not having had a bath or anything for for weeks and yeah, weeks this is how many weeks after been at least the actual three, at least three weeks after the master oh mission they did yeah, you know, yeah, they okay. tried to do the old the old sponge bath thing and i was not happy so i'm laying in in, in the ward in the bed and and when they had come and debriefed me at at 40th med uh, the team the, the group from uh uh uh, from CNC had come and did a lot of debriefing, trying mm-hmm. to, trying to get it all put together before right. before they, before they let me go, so to speak. Sure. Um, they had brought my beret, so I had my beret with me because I didn't have it with oh, the mission. Right? So I had a beret, yeah. and I carried that with me all the way through. Uh, <laughs> it had it with me all the time. Indeed. And uh, so I get there, and I got my beret with me, and I says, "I'm and." I want to take. You can't take a shower. You've got a cast on. You're talking to a nurse now. I'm talking to a nurse and not Nurse Ratchet. I hope. No, actually, she was pretty good. Okay. I didn't get a Nurse Ratchet through the whole trip, uh, <laughs> fortunately. Uh, and 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 I said, I'm going to take a shower. She can't take a shower. You got a body cast. I said, I looked at her and I said, I'm going to take a shower, with or without a body cast on. And she looks at me. She looks at the beret. She says, Can you wait a couple of minutes? And I says just a few minutes and next thing i knew they're coming in they're taking the body cast off you know because i'm going to take a shower oh yeah so i go in and i take the shower 
And I, it's funny parts of There's funny, there's good humor in all of this. Indeed. So I dropped the soap. Well, I can't bend over to get the soap. So I ring the little bell, get somebody help. She comes in. She, I says, I, I can't get the soap up. And so she comes <laughs> over, picks up the soap, hands it to me. He says, you drop it again, I'm going to get you a prison soap. In other words, a soap on a rope. With a soap on a rope, yeah. <laughs> and, and, so, and so that was my, that was my stay at, uh, part of my stay at uh, Letterman. Um, and, and, you know, so I stayed at Letterman for a while and then went home. And then I was on convalescent leave uh, at home for and where was February. Home, at this time? home was at Roseville, California, uh, which isn't far. It's 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 about an hour and a half from Letterman, uh, which is about how many hours from San Fran? Uh, Letterman is in San Fran. Yeah. Okay. No, yeah, it is. Now I remember because when I first came in, they they pulled they, I, they when I medevaced in, which was one of the best airplane rides I've ever had because they knocked me out entirely coming from Japan, Japan to Travis. I was I was dead to the world. You take off in Japan and wake yeah, up next in thing San I knew I, I was be, and, and, and and the odd oh, and, and backtracking because yes, that happens in going from Travis to Letterman, they put me in a helicopter, and I go. I'm not sure I want to be in this thing, you know. I've already been through too much of this. Particularly if it's a UE after getting shot yeah. down and almost getting oh, shot yeah. out. It, but anyways, time. it all went it all went well. So uh, I I saw so Roseville and uh, I go on convalescent leave till around f- end of February, uh, and then I go I I they figure I'm well enough. Letterman's released me off of convalescent. And I, I go back to Bragg, uh, and I get assigned then to uh, uh, third group. Okay, so let's uh, take a little break here in this storytelling to wrap up the first story, which was on that night, you knew the code name was Blackjack, which stuck with you. Yes. And Blackjack, when I talked to him, he goes, yeah, we pulled these guys out. On the, I mm-hmm. don't even know who they were. But... Idaho was able to get you out and the rest of uh, your the remaining team, the survivors, out. And uh, so we fast forward 34 years. And actually, it's 33 years because now oh, okay. um, you and I are members of the Special Operations Association, right. which has annual reunions and lost, lost wages. And... And not and thirty three years before that, you came up to me, introduced yourself. We had our CCN shirts on, and we're talking. You said, "You know, uh, I heard I heard you've been doing some interviews, and I got a good story, you know." And so I talked to you. And I said, "Well, I'm working on these other things, and I'm still working full time. I got my family, but hey, if I don't call you, talk to me next year." And so next year, thirty four years later, after that incident. You came up to me and said, hey, remember me? I said, yeah, I'll never forget your story. And I said, did you ever figure out who rescued you? You said, no. And I forget if you said blackjack or not. But at some point during our discussion, I said, I remember Lynn talking to me when I came back to CCN. Because this story was just so incredible. One of the first, if not the, well, one of the, if not the first night bright lights to repel, they were going to repel in. And uh, so that stuck with me. I said, hey, you know, you got to talk to that guy. And that was Lynn Black. Yeah. And you guys met. And that was the first time at the 34 years where yes. you two were able to get together. And since, 
you become good friends. You've been to his house. He's been to you, yeah. your house, and you guys have celebrated time and again at the reunions with your with your sweethearts. You know, yeah. It's been and and that was where I have so much appreciation for the sore, and then of course for you uh, having being the conduit of getting us together because you had heard both stories. Yeah, but if it wasn't for your story being so damn incredible, I never would have remembered it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and so it's been it's been great to have that uh, that reunion and, and, and to add another sidebar to that. I had always regretted I was never able to get in, to in touch with Sergeant Schultz's family. Right. And recently, within the last two years, for some reason, I finally saw the wall, the traveling wall, and uh, uh, Vietnam Wall in my home near my hometown. And somebody says, "Have you ever looked on the on the website for the traveling wall?" Because uh, it's 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 been tough for me oh, emotionally. I mean, the thing and about I, the way he you know, he stayed out of a helicopter to be with you, and within minutes, oh, such tragedy. Yeah, and I went on and found and saw where somebody. And his family, it was his niece, had written something on the website. And fortunately, she had left her email address. Which was in Oceanside, Oceanside. California. And there's a, yeah, I forget, as I, as I talked, because I remember <laughs> a little bit more. Well, it turns out I, I, I wrote her, and she eventually, she hadn't been looking at her email, eventually got back to me. And I have now been able to hook up with Sergeant Schultz's niece, and we've yes. done a lot of talking back and forth. And I was able to go. I went down and visited them uh, a day, and we sat down and was able to talk about all of these things. And she was able to find out for the family more about what happened because things weren't being told then. It was all top secret. You were only told that something happened in Southeast Asia, and uh, that's what they got in their letter. That you know. Oh yeah. You're, in South Vietnam. Yeah, and that he was, was it. injured. Yeah, and uh, and so it was a very close reunion. We've been in touch ever since, back and forth, trying to get there. Well, let me, but then turns around, you let, add let to that. The, you let, know. Yeah, let me intersect here just for a little quick sidebar. Yeah. I walked, we used to live in Oceanside, California, before we moved to lovely downtown, White Bluff, Tennessee. And one day I'm walking, and I had uh, a Special Forces shirt on, and my special forces hat, and I'm just walking along uh, one of our streets in Oceanside, not far from my house, because I always took my daily walk. This guy with a big dog comes by, we wave, he sees my shirt, he goes, hey, were you a Green Beret? So long story short, at some point he goes, did you ever know a guy named Dave Gordon? Well, <laughs> Oceanside, <laughs> 50 years or 51 years after yeah. you have this incredible mission with you and Lynn with our recon team coming in to rescue you you could have knocked me over with half a feather I'm going well uh, Dave Gordon like he goes yes so anyway we had that little sidebar gave him the book with your story in it yep. and uh, we had a new friendship there until we finally moved here but we had this is a sidebar so this is a good point so in your life David how did you a little guy from up there in Northern California Decide I'm going to get into the army. Your story is getting different because you could. Were you drafted? Did you volunteer? You said I've read the Green Berets, or what was it that got you going here? Well, and I and re, well, I was drafted. 
Um, I was <laughs> fighting it all the way. I wasn't fighting the draft. Right, I was right. just, I was trying to go to college. I was trying to go to school. Uh, I enjoyed uh, the campus union more than I enjoyed my studies, and so I wasn't getting very good grades. <laughs> oh, I know so, that feeling. I, so I, I got drafted <laughs> in the original draft, not even the lottery draft. Is that right? What year is this? I was in 67. Okay. January 67. You get this California boy and was sent to Forest Lewis, Fort Lewis, Washington in January. So that was, that was a treat on itself. So I went through, uh, <laughs> yeah, went, went through Fort, Lewis. Fort Lewis, and then the, they decided— uh, I was going to be a medic. So I went to Fort Sam Houston, Texas, and became a medic. And that's when I first got interested in special forces because of the the medical training, the special forces medical training. We had a lot of the guys that were there that I'd run into. And I was, stay, I was kept at Fort Lewis, or I mean, sorry, Fort Sam Houston for a while uh, to uh, run troops. Uh, they kept me there instead of sending me to when after you say AIT. run troops, what well, do you mean? Well, I was, I was acting sergeant in charge of uh, the new AIT troops that were coming in. Okay. And then I and I was on standby to go to OCS. Uh, well, that got put on hold, and they sent me to Germany to be uh, uh, to uh, the 509th Mechanized Airborne Unit. And oh. I wasn't even airborne. So I walk in, and I want to become airborne, and First Sergeant Road, First Sergeant's there, a great first sergeant <laughs> had two f- t- soles of two feet placed painted in front of his desk. And that's where you stood when you talked to him. <laughs> well, he asked me, he says, you're not airborne. I says, no, sir. First sergeant he says, you want to go to airborne school? I says, yeah, I would like to. He says, okay, get your stuff. You're leaving tomorrow. <laughs> so they sent me to Wiesbaden to airborne to jump school. So I go into jump school in Wiesbaden. Really? Yeah. I didn't know they had one there. Yeah. And, uh, so I went to jump school there Yeah, and then I came back and I was in a, in a medical platoon for a while. And all of a sudden I get called in and the first sergeant road decided I was going to go to NCO Academy. So they turn around and send me down to the seventh army NCO Academy. And I'm down there. And of course at Batolls, you also had the special forces teams down there. So Ten I come reassociated. Right. Yeah. So I come, I, I continue to come associated with the special forces. So I get back from the NCO Academy, and I've done. I did fairly well there. So next thing I know, I'm being called in, and I, they're going to send me to OCS. So I leave and go to OCS. When I come OCS, you get to pick. You, you get to put in your preferences. Your preference for well, I put in my preference for infantry special forces, and I got it. Really. And so I go to Fort Bragg. And after you graduate from OCS. After I graduated from OCS. So At the top of the class, I assume. Uh, I don't remember that. I remember we had. Oh, no, lot, I remember we had a lot of shenanigans. That's for sure. <laughs> well, and we had so kind of good. a special class because most of our classes was prior service. Really, they weren't brand new out of out of college or brand new recruits. They were a lot of prior service. We had former E sevens, E sixes, supply sergeants, people oh, that wow. were people that were in the MI. You know, and so we had sure. fun. We had <laughs> fun in that class because people knew things and could do things that. The tax weren't you ready for? Yeah, and OCS uh, is never the same. No, it wasn't. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, we invented a candidate. We actually invented a candidate, and the guys that were MI had background training, breaking into the safes. Right, they broke in. 
to the safes at the battalion headquarters and, 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 and invented this candidate. And we'd have people take tests for him and stuff, and they never could find him. How did the candidate do? Did he graduate? He, he, he graduated, but the sad part of it was, and we did it about the time they did some recycling candidates coming into OCS because mm-hmm. they do that for people who got injured or something like that. And the sad part of it was we had some guys that stayed as tax, and we heard from them later, is that the next class, they had a candidate Fulton come in, and this is what we named this guy, Candidate Fulton. <laughs> oh, no. I can't imagine what that poor guy went through. <laughs> so, I mean, so there were some, there were some good times, and I went uh, 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 to uh, Special Forces uh, officers uh, training. At and, Bragg. And then was sent to Vietnam. Well, I wasn't there very long. I did a, a couple of fun stuff, you know, in Pisca and and uh, things with the team I was on. Mm-hmm. I was on an A team. Uh, this is back at Bragg. While back you're at Bragg yeah. training. Went to uh, jump master third school. Group at that time? Huh? You were in third group at that time. No, that time I was in seventh group. Seventh, okay. Yeah, I was in seventh group initially, and so we were seventh group was involved with uh, South America. Uh, uh, and so we were doing a lot of training involved in that. And, of course, in the early days of Vietnam, 7th Group sent teams, TDY, to Vietnam. Yes. And one of those teams was Roger Donlan's team, who Roger was the first Medal of Honor recipient during mm-hmm. the Vietnam War, just as a little sidebar for 7th yeah. Group history. But anyways, you know. you're in 7th Group. At some point, you find yourself in Vietnam. When do you land in Nam? I landed in Nam, and I have to be absolutely sure it was, it was June excuse me, of 1969, late June. It was right after, uh, it was right before the siege of Ben Het. Right. And um, so we were stuck in the Trang. Actually, yeah, we were stuck in the Trang for a while until that, that, that salt got settled out. Uh, and and then, they, then they sent us on into, uh, uh, I had volunteered to go to, to, go to command and control. Uh, so, uh, and I think I was the only one in my group that, that volunteered for that. Uh, so by then, then the word then I, was yeah. out. Huh? By then the word was out, but yeah, you figured out oh, about such a good role. I'll just go up to CCN. And yeah. then I, you had another unique experience. Shortly after that, you were the first member of the first SOG sniper training course. Yes. How'd uh, that happen? Well, I don't know how it happened. I, I show Must up and I, good I get day. assigned and uh, <laughs> I'm assigned to a platoon. Mm-hmm. Tune leader, and uh, next thing I know, I get a call saying, "Well, we want you and and uh, we want they want two members of uh, out of CCN to go to uh, down to sniper school along with two members out of CCC, which is the first saw. So we were the sniper first school. Uh, it was the first team to go Mark. to sniper school. Yeah, yeah. The sniper <laughs> school was put on by the Ninth Division." It was at the Ninth Division Sniper School. It was put on by MTU, Marksmanship Training Unit, out of mm-hmm. Fort Benning. So myself and, and they want and they decided they'd have one from the Hatchet Force and one from Recon. So Sergeant Arbite from Recon and myself went down, and we went down and we picked up the other folks on. We actually picked up the other folks in Saigon, and they sent us on into uh, uh, Dongtam down in Ninth Division area, and we went through the school and put up with a lot of stuff. Uh, being special forces from the from the from the from the ninth, ninth oh yeah division, but that was all right because we we literally kicked their butts in sniper school uh, out of the top out of the top eight or ten that were going went through the school there we 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 were in that top 
I was number one. Sergeant Arbright was number two uh, wow. in, in our class. CCN stood tall. Oh, we stood tall. And, and, <laughs> and, and actually, uh, SOG stood tall. And, then, and, and actually, this was in uh, Sergeant, or SOG, Chief SOG, uh, General Colonel Cavanaugh, is the one that wanted this put together. So I was able to brief him going in and brief him coming out. And, uh, really? A perfect gentleman. I mean, what, what a person. I mean, and I was nervous as hell. Here I am, a young second lieutenant, and right. I'm briefing a, you know, a full, full colonel, colonel who was in charge, Sog Chief Sog, you know, that's, uh, yeah, cause yeah, colonel, that's Car- God to me. You know? Right, well, it was because Colonel Cavanaugh came in in early August of 68, only two weeks before the uh, disaster, that would be four, mm-hmm. when we lost 16 Green Berets yeah. in that sapper attack. And he was a World War II vet who saw incredible combat. Mm-hmm. He had several uh, Valor Awards from World War II, but he's highly respected, and he really he really cared about the men involved. And that, for you to get briefed by him, and then you come back, you're done. So what was so how'd you uh, debrief him? That's, that's uh, well, well, I just We just talked about it. We talked about particular missions that might be available to use snipers because you had to carry extra equipment, and, and, it, and it really had to be a specific mission. You couldn't just walk around with a sniper rifle hoping you'd see something. And so we talked about some of the different missions, even though I was very novice to it, right. uh, of that type of thing. And I believe that some of those missions were actually involved uh, later, uh, you know, when you have a point mission mm-hmm. of some sort, because uh, you can't just roam around with this with this sniper rifle. Right. Um, so, and what was the rifle at that time? That you well, were using? we used an M14 National Match for training mm-hmm. uh, with National Match ammunition. What they did, what they purchased or had uh, for for SOG operations, was a bull barrel uh, Remington 600 uh, with the same scope system that we were using, and that's what they were going to use for for the uh, for the sniper missions for. Uh, for SOG operations for the teams that went out and we're going to do that. Uh, fortunately, unfortunately, I never got an opportunity to really do that uh, because of the missions that I had, they had set me up for because one was a straight recon, area recon mission and the other was the POW, uh, try to uh, try to find the POW. That camp. kind of interrupted your sniper, yeah, sniper service for a little while. So. Yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> so we've covered that in detail and then... Um, you come back, you're in the Army now, you're back to uh, Bragg? I'm back to Bragg, um, healing, getting better. Uh, I'm assigned as the S2 for, um, I keep going, third group, Right. Uh, oddly enough. Uh, so uh, we first, I get wasn't a time assigned. frame here because what amazes me is you get a broken back in October of 69. Mm-hmm. We're now in March of 1970. My calendar says that's about five months and a few days, and you're up back on your feet. Now you're going to be S2. I mean, you must have been in pretty good shape to rebound like that with three crust vertebrae. Well, actually, I want to to modify that. I didn't immediately become the S2. I actually was assigned to administrative position in in a B company uh, in the third group to to, uh, and. And uh, I had I had I had my first additional duty assignment was really something. I uh, I was assigned additional duty for a line of duty investigation, and it turned out that the investigation was sadly for a uh, a master. I think it was a sergeant first class, but he was a master repeller, 
and he was teaching and going through classes, and they were on their repelling mission. And at Bragg, at Bragg, this was right. at Bragg, and they were doing their, I think, their first repel. And he hooked the students up, and they jumped out on the skid to repel down out of the Huey at about 60 feet. And he jumped out on the skid, and he had forgotten to hook himself up to the donut in, oh. in the cargo, and he fell, a direct fall that killed him. And then I'm a person who had gone through something similar to that yeah. in a different way. But here I am assigned to line of duty that. And it was it was not easy. I can't but, imagine. Uh, but I did, and, and, and we got it all through and everything else. Uh, but then, I, then from there, I was assigned as the S2 for third group. And I was there during um, the Egyptian president, Anwar Sadat. Anwar Sadat, who was who was assassinated, and we went through a lot of that because that was our area of responsibility. Sure. And I was doing briefings and things then, uh, and I had an absolutely fantastic warrant officer, analyst, special uh, intel analyst, who put together some very fine information, and we pretty much predicted what was going to happen after that when Nasser come in and really, but they were very concerned about there being an overall coup. Uh, 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 going on there, and you know, we were obviously very concerned. And, and, and in that same time frame, uh, we also went through the uh, first Pan Am, the first airline hijacking that happened. It was a Pan Am Airlines, and it was hijacked, and it was landed in Jordan uh, with a terrorist, and we were put on alert to try to uh, deal, help deal with that. Because uh, that was our area of specialty, right? And we were put in isolate, and they put a JUWAT together, which was a joint unconventional warfare assessment team, which was a small group of people to go over and assess the situation to see what might really be needed. And uh, we were going civilian. They gave us official red passports and our gamma gomulin shots. And Ooh. oh, that hurt. Uh, but hurt. anyway, <laughs> the day before we were ready to, to fly in as civilians, uh, the terrorist uh, took the, all the hostages off the aircraft and blew up the aircraft. So we end up not going. Uh, good sign, bad sign. The fact that we didn't have to go and, and deal with it, that was okay. The fact that they took the hostages off before they blew up the airplane was some. It was was that's when they did things differently than they do now. Right. So I went through all of those things, and then um, they sent me to Russian language school. And that was going okay, but not as well as they wanted. Um, <laughs> so, and I was wondering why I was going to Russian language school when I figured I was going back to Vietnam. And then I said, you know, I want to go back to Vietnam. So uh, I asked to go to ranger school first, and then be sent back to Vietnam. So I went through ranger school. Really? And then back to Vietnam. To, and were you landed at CCC in Kantum? Well, I kind of landed there by by accident. Not by accident, by intent. But <laughs> the fact that I got there was, was strange. I was pulled into the repo depot when you go through. Right. After you land, coming back yeah, to Vietnam. Yeah, coming back to Vietnam, repo depot. And they have, you know, you're there for a couple of days till they figure out what they're going to do with you. And I didn't have contacts in 
bragged to make sure I, where I was going to go. So uh, oh, sadly, yeah. uh, anyway, this colonel, his name was Colonel Carpenter. I remember that he was Lieutenant Colonel. He was in charge of the repo depot and he calls me in and he says, Oh, I see you've had, you've been in combat and you've, you've had your experiences in combat. He says, but you haven't had any command time. And I says, Oh, well that, that will probably happen. And he says, well, I, I have an opportunity for you. And I said, I have four companies here. I have a, a D-Rose company, an R&R company, and an incoming company, and a headquarters company. I says, okay. And I'm sitting there, and I'm listening. And he says, um, I really need somebody for my D-Rose company, a company commander. He says, and give you some command time. You've got some command experience. You might be able to deal with some of this. you're a first lieutenant, right? No, I'm a captain. By oh, you're a, you I'd got two, two to silver bars. Yeah, that, I had oh, okay. been promoted to captain when they, well, and that's why I got sent to the S two is because uh, the position I was in was a lieutenant's position when I first got back. So this is 1972, 71, I think. Late it was. 71. Yeah, late 71. Okay, mid 71. So I look at him. Territory you covered. Now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I've covered a lot. Of t- <laughs> so I look at him, and. Uh, and he tells me all the problems they have with the D-Rose company. They got guys that come in. They got to be drug tested before they can go home. They've got, you know, some have right. PTSD. Uh, some every now and then one of them Some will, have syphilis. Yeah, yeah, have a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so they have to try to, they want to clean them up before they send them home. So they don't get to go home right away. Right. And, uh, and I said, so every now and then somebody will get a weapon or something and trying to take over the barracks. So I looked at him and I says, okay, that's fine. I says, I have a solution. I says, you do is you shoot the guy, then you treat him for his drugs and his gunshot wound at the same time and send him home a hero. And he looks across the desk at me and he says, I don't think you're the guy I want for the job. And I says, I'm glad you see it that way. Now, can I go here? And he could have screwed me over something fierce, but he did not. He did send me back to command, to SOG. Yeah. And then from SOG, they sent me to, they needed a, 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 a staff officer at, at CCC. They decided they weren't going to put me back in the field. And again, you land at CCC, and you have some interesting circumstances that arise that you uh, had to address. Oh yeah, there was there was a lot of things at CCC. It was a good good operation, except it was totally different than what I was used to. Because you know, when you're when you're uh, was in Da Nang when we were at FOB two, you, you're isolated. You have your own camp. Right. Here we had a road running right through our through camp. Through the middle of the camp. Right through the middle of the camp. You I know. know. Recons uh, on one side, the, the tavern and the hatchet forces are on the other side. And, and the hospital was split by the two and the headquarters. <laughs> so I was sent there as a targeting officer, which was good. Um, you know, it, it, it gave me a chance to start learning staff, other staff work. And, and I got to be more involved with the targeting and, and, and what was set up for the missions and doing the briefings on the targets. So I got to learn more about operations that way. You know, and it actually was very good. But I also got tagged for a couple of uh, missions. Uh, one in particular was they had had a, a, a CH-34 go down. No, uh, uh, Jolly Green, 53, CH-53, right, yep. Air Force Jolly Green had been shot down, had been shot up and had to land at a base. Uh, engines were, were shot up. And it, it landed, ended up landing at Dock Toe. It was one of the launch sites for CCC at that time. Yes. But and it was also a launch site where they often had incoming, enemy incoming every day. Yeah, surrounded by mountains. And, and you know, so you had incoming all the time. And so they, they needed to, get the, that aircraft out of there 
and they were going to replace the engine. And the, and, and the mission, the my mission was a little different, but the, the operation was going to be uh, secure the aircraft, secure the area around the aircraft. They were going to fly a C-130 in with a new engine <laughs> for the CH-53. Really? And so we're securing the area, and in comes this C-130. They pull this engine out of the, out of the uh, cargo area on rollers, go over, take the other engine, take one of the engines off the 53, and put that engine on. And then they did this in a matter of hours. I mean, it was amazing. Wow. But during that time frame, they had flown us into into Docto with uh, uh, VNAF uh, Hueys. King Bee. Oh, no. Hueys. Hueys. These were Hueys. King Bees I would never have worried about. These were Hueys. Oh. So this was uh, the VNAF pilots. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, so. So VNAF they, is a Vietnamese Air Force. Which yeah. Is, with, and the King Bees were a part of 219 Squadron, yeah. which was separate from the conventional Vietnamese, South Vietnamese Air Force. Yeah. And, just and so and we a whole delineate different that. mentality oh, with very, them. <laughs> So we're there on the ground, and I made the, I had the aircraft stay on the ground because we had a a, a a heavy platoon of of indigenous myself and a couple of Americans, and we secured the area, the airfield, and the and the and the and the aircraft was still on the air the helicopters the, were still on the airfield, and they were there actually running, and they're getting calls through their resources that there are several. Viet, Viet Cong, Viet Cong, they're coming in, they're going to they're gonna mortar. And so they said, we're going to take off. We'll come back and get you. I says, no, you're not. You're not taking off. <laughs> well, we're going to take off. We go back. I says, no, you're not. I took a, I took a yard from each. One of your mountain yards. Mountain, yard, mountain yards and put one of them in each aircraft <laughs> with a car 15, actually an M16 for them, and said, if he starts to take off, shoot him. They stayed. They stayed until we got out of there. <laughs> that was a subtle but effective methodology. That was how I did things. And, and, and sadly, that's how I did things as I stayed in the military, which kind of uh, caused me some problems through the years. So so that was that mission. You know, just little things you so, do. You know, sure. Any other highlights for the, your second tour of duty before we get to your third tour? Well, my second, my second tour, uh, we, SOG was winding down. Right. And so you had the biggest thing other than when we got the camp rocketed and fortunately I was on a, a targeting, uh, uh, we were doing our targets and I was down in Saigon at Op 35 then. And on our way back, they had mortar, they rocketed our camp and my hooch was gone. So wow. I was glad I wasn't, wasn't there. I was <laughs> glad I was, I was down to Saigon or on the way back from Saigon. That morning they rocketed uh, no the camp and my hooch was gone. So, I mean, that's semi-exciting, I guess. Um, but when they, they went ahead, I extended, and they were, they were closing down the, the FOBs. Uh, I was sent to what was called the FANK Training Command, and it was uh, a, where we would bring Cambodian uh, battalions in to, there were three different sites. It was Don Batin, there was uh, Milau, there were three sites. I don't remember right now off the top of my head the three of them. But I was at Don Batin, which is near Cameron Bay. And there there we would uh, we would bring in Cambodian battalions, actually five hundred men. Five hundred? Five hundred as a battalion. They were they were called mobile battalions. Okay. And they would show up, they would get off C one thirties and majority of them had shower shoes and sarongs. <laughs> 
Really? We were responsible as the camp. I was the S3 at the camp. Right. We were responsible for not only outfitting them with clothing and equipment, but training them from individual training to battalion size operations in 12 weeks. 12 weeks. And, and we would have as many as three battalions there at different intervals of training at a time. Well, so who was there? Who were you training them with? Was there any SF personnel? Or? Yeah, they were all SF personnel. And we also had New Zealanders. We, oh, were, no we were a joint operation with yeah. New Zealanders. Uh, and it was a joint operation. And we were in a Vietnamese compound. Uh, so we dealt with uh, the hierarchies dealt with some of the interactions there. Right. Uh, the Vietnamese were responsible for providing the, the food and, and some of the other support. We were responsible for pretty much everything else. Um, and it, it was, it was rewarding at a lot of times. But didn't you find like little idiosyncratic problems such as their feet wouldn't fit? In oh yeah. It, 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 and things American. They had a thing they called bataboos, and what they were was a heavy-duty tennis shoe, high-top right. tennis shoe. Black. Uh, black. Oh, yeah, black. Well, <laughs> the, the soldiers that they brought in, the people that they brought in, they're, they're indigenous persons. They're used to working in the rice fields, and so their feet are different than ours. They're, 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 they're short and they're wide. It's just a, it's, I don't know if it's you know, a combination of being barefoot all the time right. from children. Well, these bataboos were built for American-type people shoot feet so the all these they would they would cut the inner part uh put a, a slice in the inner part at the top of the, of, of the boot <laughs> so that their feet wouldn't hurt well we had as typical uh as things are winding down you end up with a lot of non-airborne personnel in charge of things and we had this general come in and he was going to inspect the area. Him and his staff were going to inspect what we were doing because somebody had decided we needed to be inspected. <laughs> and he sees these boots. And he sees all of them have been cut open. And he starts getting really upset. And for some reason, you're, 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 they're, they're ruining the clothing we're giving them. They're not being respectful. Right, right. So finally, we cornered his staff and says, look it, their feet don't fit in them. You know, we kind of showed them physically. You, they got to do this to be comfortable. Another example was they were, <laughs> we were issuing them A6 machine guns, which is a, a, an air-cooled uh, 30, caliber. 30 caliber machine gun, World yeah. War II, Korea-level machine gun. Well, these guys aren't as tall as we are. They can't reach around to get to the trigger, so they'd end up having to put the, the stock on their shoulder no. to, to end up firing them. Well, they got upset at that. They're not firing them right. I said, they can't reach around. But we had a machinist who was trying to do some cutting of, of the stock so they, right. they could reach around. And finally, <laughs> after showing him this, he made sure we got the right tools to be able to properly outfit. And that was just some of many things that went on, little things that went on with that. But, you know, they were dedicated. They cared. Yeah. Um, we had, you know, there were, there were political incidences that happened within the groups. But one of the interesting things, we had to publish our training schedules. you got to publish training schedules if you're in the military. We had to publish them in English, Vietnamese, French, because a lot of the leaders only spoke French, and Cambodian. So we had to publish four training schedules. I had, had a secretary who spoke all of them, and she would write those training schedules up, 
and then using a mimeograph machine, oh. we'd publish them. <laughs> you know, things like that. But my 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 future highlight of all of that indeed was is my XO was now retired Lieutenant General Joseph Keith Kellogg. No, who was who at one point was the national uh, assistant national security advisor for President Trump, and then became the national security advisor for uh, Vice President. Um, do you remember the name? Hell, why do I forget names? Our current, not our current, but uh, uh, oh, say you too. Yeah, our, our past vice pa- president. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, past vice good. president. That's a good way to say it. But anyway, uh, <laughs> to, to have Michael him, Pence. and he was a dynamic uh, officer in XO because he kept things clean. You know, he kept the staff moving. He kept things between what was going on. Plus, he had a multinational force. Uh, not only the Vietnamese, but the, the 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 New Zealanders who were absolutely great. I mean, they were great people. Um, but he kept all of that together and ran very smooth. The operation ran very smooth, and we did a fantastic job of training and sending these. We'd send them, you know, they come in and like I said, in sarongs and shower shoes, and we'd send them back, fully fully loaded up, and combat ready to go, and they go right into combat there in wow. Cambodia. So you, you felt like you were hopefully doing a good thing with that. Wow. And then uh, I, I finished that last, that um, last tour extension, duty. Yeah. that tour of duty, and I came back home and was assigned, assigned to the 9th Division as the operations officer. Back to 9th and, and Division. Battalion. Yeah. Uh, they were up at Fort Lewis then. Yeah. Uh, and I was assigned to a battalion uh, uh, as a battalion S3. And then I was riffed out of the Army and the reduction of force, me and 20,000 other captains. Is that 20,000? There was 20,000 captains were riffed between the helicopter pilots, special forces, and those that weren't uh, West Pointers. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. uh, They always took care of their own. Yeah, they did take care of their own. And then uh, (laughs) I was fortunate to somebody, I ran into somebody on an airplane, and he happened to be very high up in the California National Guard. And he says, why don't you come down and talk to me when, when you get home? Uh, and he got me into the California National Guard, which was pretty tough at the time, particularly for Vietnam vets. They didn't want them. Kind right, of, of course. And, and, as, and as a captain. And then eventually they, he decided and, and other people decided that I should be go back on active duty working for, with the California National Guard. And so that's how I finished out my career. Uh, of 26 years. Uh, 26 years? 26 years uh, in the military. Wow. Uh, so then from there, you jump from firefights into firefighting in San Francisco. Right. I, and, be- I mean, at what age do you volunteer to become a firefighter and then get through the training to become a firefighter? Because you were no spring chicken then. No, I still am not. But uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> was 46, I was 46 years old. Oh, my God. And... Um, what happened is one of the guardsmen that was, he was actually a warrant officer. He was our maintenance warrant officer. Uh, he, had, he knew I was getting out. I was retiring. I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't want to be a rent-a-cop. I didn't want to be an insurance salesman. But I, had, I figured I was <laughs> young enough and, you know, pretty much able to, to do things. Yeah. And there's been a lot of things that have happened medically with me from injury to now uh, and other stories. 
so he says, why don't you, he was, he was actually, he was a, a captain in the San Francisco Fire Department because I'm stationed out of Presidio. Oh, and wow. I'm working the with, the, with, the with those with those with those groups. Yeah. And he says, uh, uh, "Why don't you Why don't you become a firefighter?" I says, "Oh, I'm I'm too old for that." He says, "They're they're testing, uh, and they're they're going to hire." I says, "Okay." And he says, "Well, first off, they can't determine your age." And I says, "Then I said, well, you know, I'm a little old. I'm a little out of shape. I'm not sure I can keep up with all them young studs." And studettes, as it, as it turned out to be. Indeed. Uh, he says, look, I've been around you long enough. No, you are in better shape than 90% of them. And then I says, well, then I got the, all the physical stuff, the medical and the, you know, herring and stuff. He says, we'll work on that. <laughs> so I went down to take the initial test, and it was a place called Moscone Center, which is a huge auditorium, so big that that's where they have car shows. Right. And... Echoes like nobody's business. And the test was one of these that they did an old-style video. And I think it was VHS video. And they showed it on these screens. And you're supposed to look at the video and mark things down and pay attention and mark things down. And I walked out of there because my hearing then was tr- was challenged. Indeed. And I went, well, at least I learned something. I'm not going to make it here. Well, Mike, who's uh, the captain, he was in training group for the for the firefighters, and so he had access to see what was coming down from the test. So out of 7,200 7, people that took the test, I scored 28. No. I couldn't believe it. I went, how did that happen? I think if you, you know? had good hearing. Yeah, I could be, maybe it's because I couldn't hear it, you know. <laughs> I swagged it all. Yeah. 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 And uh, because of things that went on, it took about three classes for me to get in and become a firefighter. And so I became a firefighter in San Francisco Fire Department, went through their, they, they did their own training. Uh, I had to go through the medical, uh, and that, I was fortunate because I was really good friends with uh, the commander at Oak Knoll Hospital, where I'd had uh, shoulder surgery uh, about six months prior. And, and this is shoulder surgery, Based off right of shoulder, night getting yeah, extracted it, it, when well, your hands yeah, this was the right it. shoulder. I'd already oh, had the left the shoulder, shoulder. Yeah, okay. done before that because of the the, the strain, and <laughs> and so I had to go through. The, first, I had to go through the uh, the physical part of it, which was which was really challenging because they do a lot of upper body work and they do what they call overhaul, which is what you're you got this pole and you're you're, you're pulling ceilings down and right. stuff. So I was well, I worked at it. I made it, and then I had to go through <laughs> the medical part. And knowing I had hearing, well, it turned out the do- it was Dr. B- uh, Dr. Owens, a female, uh, Deborah Owens. But beforehand, I knew that I had all back. I had this. I had that. I had gone to, to my uh, friend, Oak Knoll, and I said, is there any way you can give me a hearing test? Legitimately, I'm not trying to. And he yeah. says, yeah, I'll, I'll call. I'll, I'll get a hold of my uh, the, the, the surgeon or the doctors in charge of the hearing and they put me through what's called a speech determination hearing test. And so the little beep, 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 beep thing. Right. And so they'd say words to me or sentences, and I'd have to repeat them. Well, I showed and I passed that. So when I took my stuff into the fire department, I had a record, and as I show it, that's about three inches thick of my medical records from, from the service. <laughs> and I hand I that to her, and she goes through it, and she looks at it. And in that was my hearing test. And she says, well, I see you passed that. And she looks at me. 
And she was a person who talked about the whole person, not just a little something that might be wrong with you, but the whole person. She looked at it and she says, if you've been through this and you want to be in the fire department, who am I to stand in your way? (laughs) So she checked me off and passed me. (laughs) You know, uh, so there I am. I'm in, I'm in, in the fire department. Yeah, cause I remember you come to the reunions and you tell us about some of the fires you've been, and we're going, "My God, Dave!" Yeah, there's been there's been some interesting ones, fires and, and incidences. You know, mm-hmm. they're not all fires. You know, car accidents, things like that. That, are, but it it's uh, it was it was rewarding to do to do that kind of work. Everybody wanted me to become a said, "Oh, you got to become an officer. You got to become an officer." And I didn't want to deal with the politics, so I stayed a base firefighter. For 17 years uh, i wanted to be on just streets. a firefighter yeah. on the street and uh, i turned out to be the one the oldest rookie ever in the fire san francisco fire department <laughs> and then i turned out to be the oldest online firefighter in the san francisco fire department no when i finally retired yeah um because that's all i wanted to be but i had the best job my last uh Six years in the department, I had what i call the best job in the, in, the, in the fire department sure and that was the tiller on the truck and for those of you who don't know what the tiller is on the truck that's the guy that rides in the back back and steers the back of the ladder. truck on the hook and ladder indeed and i call uh. it the kramer job after the after the uh <laughs> seinfeld episode when kramer was on the back of the job no is that I right love that job uh it just it just was a great great position to be in because you could do so much from that position is that right yeah you you were in charge of all the all the uh tools uh when you had a fire, you went to the roof, you went right to the roof and you started ventilating or, you know, things like that. You didn't get involved with a lot of the medical stuff because they had the people in the front did that. You were back there to take care of ladders and take care of tools. And that was just great. I just Not to mention it. getting around tight corners in San Francisco. Yeah, actually, actually, <laughs> oddly enough, we could get around tight corners in the ladder truck easier than the engines could. Really? Because we could swing it out. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. I remember seeing that back in Trenton when I grew yeah. up. It's like that's the job I want. But yeah, I could it never was a great job. For it. it was a great job. So, <laughs> well, then, did, wait, did you have breaks? Did you have your own? No, breaks? we did not. In fact, Ooh. that brings up a story. We go to this this car. <laughs> it ended up being a car fire, and it's on one of the streets in San Francisco that has a long slope down towards the ocean. Ooh. And I'm back there, and we pull up, and the driver, which is a relatively new driver, jumps out of the rig to go help. Well, he forgot to put on the emergency the brake, the emergency <laughs> brake. And so I'm rolling down, and I've got no way to stop this thing. And it's starting to slowly go, go, go going to pick up speed. So while I'm sitting there figuring, how am I going to stop this? What's my next move? Fortunately, one of the experienced firefighters saw what was happening, runs to the, throws, and, and is slams his hand on the emergency brake as, as, as I make a vision. Oh. And that stopped it right then and there. <laughs> of course, we it, the, the truck almost buckles because it yeah. gained just quite, just enough speed when you got a, a heavy trailer in behind it. But things like that, you know, they're oh, yeah. little things the like little that. The little moments in time as a firefighter yes. oh, yes. in the hills of San Francisco. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> but uh, so I did that. And then, uh, and, 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 and I got through the injuries. I've uh, been having my surgeries and stuff. But I also got involved in uh, what they call ultra running. Indeed. Uh, and that is as I retired and started in the fire department. And uh, I got into uh, running 100-mile uh, events. And I remember uh, that. And 
That was good. It was a good time in life. It was tough. It was hard, but it was a good time in life. Yeah, because you would run about 99 more miles than I would. (laughs) (laughs) With my knees. No, thank you, David. Oh, my God. but, But all of this goes back to, one, my upbringing, and two, I think with the experience and teachers that I had when I was going through school but, and having really great teachers and people who challenged me. And then being in special forces in the military, I had experienced people who took an interest in making you better, not putting you down, but making you better. Yeah. And having come out of the ranks into the officer corps, I also think it helped me listen to the NCOs uh, much better. Right, uh, uh, and and that really made a big difference in in the rest of my life of of pushing myself, sometimes even beyond my limits, but also not forgetting the people around me. Indeed, and so as we get closer to closing out here, another issue that you've had to deal with all along is the um, is the, the whole thing with PTSD. Yeah, it's it's been it is it, is part has driven my life. And the PTSD, I think, really hit, of course, with Sergeant Schultz. Oh, yeah. And and even though the gesture that he made and what he did impacted on me tremendously emotionally, it also impacted tremendously on me and how I viewed life and how I viewed the rest of my time in, in the service and any place else. And, 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 and pretty much what it was is you're going to do what I tell you to do if it's not illegal, if it's not immoral, and if I'm in charge of you're going to do it. The other thing, part of that is, if you do what I tell you to do and it's right, you get the credit. If you, do, if you don't do what I tell you to do and you get it, get it, uh, you get it wrong, it's your problem. If you do what I tell you to do and you get it wrong, then that's my problem. And that's how I viewed my, both my uh, military career and actually in times that I was put in charge of things in the fire service. And and the PTSD comes from, I went through that, I went through more experiences in the service, not just Vietnam, but also in, in, in life. Sure. Where I, 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 when actually when I first became the S3 at, in, in the 9th Division of the battalion, I had a, uh, a, one of my operations sergeant was, a, was a very definitely alcoholic. And I had to force him, and I actually brought in, legally had him put into a program because he wasn't going to get better. And sadly, he didn't make it. But that's the type of person he had to be. You had to take care of your people. Even if they didn't like it, right. you had to do something for them. And that's how I treated treated my, my, my life and my career, both in the military and in the fire service. you gotta, you got to take care of those around you because they're the ones going to take care of you. Amen. And... Uh, but the PTSD, that always, Sergeant Schultz is in my, in my mind. And then the things that I saw, the things that I experienced in combat, and the things that I experienced in the deaths and the injuries in, in the fire service, I kind of like jumped from one thing into another. But I never dealt with it. Um, I, I dealt with it in different ways, but not really proper ways. And, uh, and I have to thank Pat Watkins again. Indeed. As a person, he sat down with me. We used to sit down and talk quite a bit at SOAR, and I actually went to his home when I went to up to uh, Utah. Utah, yeah. One time. 
we sat down and he got in my face as only Sergeant Major Watkins could do. Indeed. And says, you <laughs> We've get all been there. in there and you go to the VA and you get yourself evaluated. I says, I don't need, I'm fine. I get by. I got medical. He says, no, now do it because you're going to pay for it later if you don't. And he did. And I went in and they did evaluate me. And I didn't play the game. I didn't try to be something I wasn't. Right. I just told him like I was and, and what had happened. And this has happened after my partner, uh, Troby, real name Paula, sure. had passed away from cancer because I felt I failed there too because I didn't save her. Well, you couldn't. I mean, she was up against. It didn't matter. That was my responsibility. She was. She was my responsibility at that Indeed. point. But you weren't a medic. <laughs> I still. She, she, yeah. she still do. Absolutely. And she. Uh, she's. A, well, I'll get to that later. So finally, I went in, and they, they have helped me a great deal, and and, and it's not just the private. Counseling from a from a psychiatrist, but also some of the group things I've gotten into where you don't go in and just tell all your bad stories you and what's all what's wrong with you was you go in and you talk about what's going on in your life right now hey I had this and this kind of happened and people talk about the shows that there's humanistic parts of even the PTSD and that's helped a great deal and uh and, and the other thing is trying to evaluate what I am where I what I've done where I've been and where I want to go, where I, where I should be going and how I should deal with other people because that is tough for me sometimes because they don't understand. <laughs> of course they don't understand. <laughs> but, well, yeah, when you're but, in the States, you don't have a, a brood that you could put into the helicopter and put to the, to yeah. the pilot's head and say, don't yeah. fly. Yeah. You had to deal with it without the, You have to brood. deal with it in a different way, and <laughs> I wasn't always diplomatic in that way. <laughs> but that's it, it cost me a few marriages, but that's the way it is. But uh, Troby... It's also very important in my life, as was Sergeant Schultz in two different ways. Both of them helped save me. Yeah. And one of them was she made me sit down and write the experience. She had me sit down and write it. Which I we use today. About it, and which we use today. Because I always talk about it, you think about it. But until you sit down and write about it, it doesn't really soak in. And you don't have something tangible to go back to every now and then. So there's there's very definitely two people uh, in my adult life that have made a huge difference for me. And one was Sergeant Schultz and, and, and that dedication and that loyalty. Oh. And, you know, you don't you don't leave anybody behind no. by themselves. And two was Truby in, uh, in helping me understand and understanding me and, and being there with me. Well, during your time with her, we could definitely see a change in your personality, all of which was better. Okay. Look, yeah. look at you now. <laughs> yeah, I know. I could actually I could actually talk semi-intelligently, you know. Indeed. And besides her just being uh, uh, a really caring gal, uh, she was really had her act together. She did. And uh, it was obvious that she had a positive impact on you. That's what she, she did. Uh, and, uh, and, it's, and I think about her every day. And just like I pretty much think about Sergeant Schultz and, and everything that I do. I think about that dedication. Indeed. Uh, it, it's, unless you've been there, you don't know. No. And that's what's hard for most civilians to understand. Some firefighters, police officers, law enforcement, they can understand that because they've had incidences where it's been a life and death situation. But for the most part, the civilians only see it on 
movies and TV and stuff. They don't really understand it. They don't see it at a gut check level like you did. Yeah. Or like you did either. <clears throat> oh, you we know. had a couple. You know. Nothing like that. <laughs> but I never I had it. a broken back. Oh, how many inches have you lost? I lost height? almost I lost almost a, 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 an inch in height. <laughs> they just recently, finally, after 50 years, uh, two years ago, they went in and did a lumbar laminectomy because my 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 hips were so were getting so bad from the, from the from the cramping and the pinching that was going on on my back even after i was running 100 mile races i right. couldn't do it anymore um they did that uh 6 mo- 6 months ago they did my left shoulder again um they're, now they're looking at some other things that they're trying to fix and the va has been absolutely fantastic uh i go to uh, Santa Rosa Clinic, and I go to San Francisco uh, for the uh, operations. For all the operations, and they're they're um, associated with UCSF. And an interesting thing about that, and if you don't mind me just taking just a few minutes no, to please, tell the story about, here. you know, and it goes back to Vietnam. In all honesty, in all oddity, um, the surgeon I went in to, was going to do my back. Mm-hmm. Uh, Doctor Dang uh, went in, did my interview, talking to him. Uh, because they'd done enough things that they kept trying to find the problem. They found the problem. They were trying to relieve the problem. And the first thing they did is they gave me a couple of epidurals in my back, and they didn't last uh, but a couple of weeks. He knew, he says, there's more wrong. We got we got to do more. And they've done probably a half a dozen MRIs on my back. But we sat down and we talked before we started the epidurals. Well, his father was a doctor in Vietnam. And he worked for the U.S. forces. When we pulled out of Vietnam, the U.S. forces, probably the CIA maybe, I don't know, pulled him and his family out of Vietnam. Wow. And relocated them here in the States. Well, they had two sons. And I don't know if they had them then or, you know, brought with them or they had them. Well, both sons became doctors in different ways. And both of them work UCSF, and both of them give to the VA as a thank you. Wow. For surgeons. And both of them are highly regarded. When I'd say, Dr. Dan, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it turns out he did my back. His brother did my shoulder. No. Yeah. Dang me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I kept it all in the family. <laughs> uh, it was very interesting. But, I mean, talk uh, about people who give back. Oh, yeah. You know, and he told me that's just because we spent first interview, we spent almost 40 minutes just talking, wow. which you don't find that in a doctor very no, often. Not these days. No. Well, that gives us a positive note to uh, kind of head down the final part of the trail here. Any last final thoughts before we officially close out? Well, officially close out, one, I want to thank you uh, and, and your staff for, for doing this. And because, Jocko. huh? And Jocko. And Jocko for doing this because it does, it, it, it enlightens a lot of folks of what's going on. Um, and it helps also, doing this helps the individual uh, because they get to express some things they may not have been able to express or at least get some things out. And some of it brings back mem- bad memories and some of it brings back good memories. You know, like getting stuck on a hospital ship and trying to fight that thing out. You know, uh, it brings back 
a lot, even though there's some bad, but it brings back a lot of positives. So they can start, people like myself can talk the positives and not just feel the negatives. Indeed. So I thank you for that. Well, it's my pleasure. We all thank Jocko and Echo for the team there oh, yeah. to back us up, and even our secret technician. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> we got to keep something in this in this operation secret. Indeed, indeed, we have to stay soft, top secret. So it's at this point that we thank today's military, the border patrol, first responders, local law enforcement, at all the different levels to help to keep our country. country and streets in America safe, even when there are efforts to defund our police departments. We thank the men and women who have served our country in years past. Heroes like you, David. David Gordon, who served our country for 26, 28 years, and then for at the San Francisco Fire Department and ever onward. We also remember and salute the men and the women who could not come back and uh, who are amongst our missing in action today. And as always, we thank Jocko Willink Productions, his counterpart, Echo, for making these uh, possible. And um, last but not least, we just want to say, God bless America. Yes, God bless America. We're back for our post-interview review. And of course, I'm joined today, rejoined, after a few episodes away from the scene, our top secret technician, Tom the Tom the Terrific. Uh, what can I say? What do you think about that story? It's uh, <sighs> just, yeah. <laughs> I know, it's just like mind-boggling. Just another day in SOG. It's just weird because every time you bring someone in and I get to sit here, and since I've missed, I think, oh, God, it feels like 10 of them. I think about it's bad, 10. Uh, which is horrible, uh, and I apologize for that. Um, still work, work, for a work gets in the way. Work, I know, <laughs> but it's uh, every time you bring someone in, it's just one story after the other. That it's like the one-upmanship. Every time you bring someone in, they got to one-up the last guy. You have to make it worse. It's got to be. It was this bad. I mean, I can only imagine falling from that helicopter in the middle of the night in the triple canopy as the helicopter is falling the in same the same rate. direction. <laughs> You're, you're like, do I do I reach up and grab at it, or do I just do I just let it go? You know, and oh, um, and then hitting the ground and getting at least getting out of the way. And obviously, the adrenaline kicked in to be able to move with you know with a broken with, back. Can you? I just. But oh. then a link up operation, probably one of the most dangerous missions that anyone in the military has ever faced. It, you know, friendly unfriendly, hands down, the most dangerous operation you can conduct, and yet. They did it at night. <laughs> at night. This is back before we have all the aviation right. tools that are night available vision today. goggles and, Nothing and like that. IR strobes and you know all the all that stuff that they have now versus what you had back then. You're just trying to link up with, you know. It reminds me of uh in the book with uh with Doug. Uh, oh, the Frenchman. the Frenchman. When he went down and linked up, how are we going to meet this guy in the middle of nowhere? The CIA and agent. All of a sudden, the guy just pops in. You know, same yeah, thing. It's they like, met him on a hilltop. Yeah. <laughs> just, and the CIA just, didn't want to get their pants wet. Yep. So they had to go down. They gave the uh, the explosive device to the Frenchman, to, uh, which was very successful. Yeah. But it's, uh, you know, I look at the, listening to stories and listening to, you know, that just that operation and just in general. And then, you look at it 33 years later, linking up with Lynn and and finally meeting the man who 
saved your life. Yeah. I mean, how fulfilling that had to be for him, but also think about what that did for Lynn, you know, Lynn Black and what it does for him. It's like, oh, you're the guy. Now I yeah. have a, now, now I know, you know. Now I know who I saved. Yeah, exactly. Because otherwise it's just, yeah, it was crazy. But you didn't, is it real? Because you, you don't know. Yeah, they know. never linked yeah, up. Exactly. So finally you link up 33 years later. I and, know. Um, I remember reading that in that book and it's just, it, it's incredible. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. Just everything you went through and then to stay in. So you get drafted. Yeah. <laughs> then you decide, Hey, you know what? I don't want to do this stuff. Let me go this route. And then, okay. So I went SF and then hey, you know what? Riff. I'm going to go SOG. And then, Hey, I'm going to stay in for 26 years. Yeah. Who does that? I Anthony mean, gets riffed. Yeah. <laughs> gets, gets kicked out. <laughs> You know, and then yeah. and then comes back and says, "I'm going to keep doing this." And then, like, yeah, I'll give that firefighting. Uh, reminds me of uh, uh, Jim Shorten. Oh. Like, can, <laughs> you can. It, it's like, oh, I'm not quite ready yet. Let me. Uh, you know, I'm going to go to space, and maybe yeah. I'm going to go rescue people on a boat. Yeah, I'll become a PJ for a while. <laughs> I get kind of bored. Yeah, <laughs> go to Mount St. Helens. You yeah, know, it's just like one thing after the other. Unbelievable. Um, yeah, it's you know, you guys always amaze. Um, your stories are amazing. Uh, the heroism that is is there is what built and makes this country great oh, well, every we're day. We're biased. <laughs> yeah, we are. But at the same point, it's still it's still true, though. I mean, that's you think about what that the next generations have to look to. That's why these these sogcasts are so good because people need to understand what men and women did back then, what sacrifices were made, Indeed. and how hard the struggles are because that. You know, he shows it, you know, that survivor guilt is is real. It hangs you in know? there. And it, it doesn't go away. My dad was diagnosed with PTSD in 2010, and he served in Vietnam from 64 to, or in, he was in the Navy, but he was in 64 to 68. And, you know, he served tours down in the, uh, Delta. down by the Delta. So right. it's like he got di- diagnosed with PTSD in 2010, wow. suffered with it his whole life, but didn't know it. He didn't wow. know what it was. Yeah. Because there was never, a, you know, until the wars recent nobody's really kind of really coined it and no, no one really put an emphasis on it and you guys you know a lot of those guys suffered for so many years absolutely so. you can see that dave was really lucky he was able to connect with a really good counselor at the va yeah and that's what and that's what helps it's you know the friends and family around you the counselors you can find and the methods that work for you to get that out because if you're just going to bottle it up it's never going to go away so i know he's proof of it indeed and you get back to we kind of skipped over it, but when Lynn Black in Idaho got back to the launch site, the launch site COs, they said, we're ready for some sleep and some food. They said, well, get some food, but gear up. You're going <laughs> you out right up. now. Yeah. <laughs> they had to go back and get they went, the went back helicopter. For, for the helicopter. And <clears throat> the Marines had additional bodies to pick up, so the Marines went back. They had to secure an LZ, and they took then, <laughs> as in only the Army— they gave them a lieutenant who is going to go along to blow down the trees to help clear out the LZ, and he took the wrong kind of explosives. But, of course, he, that was his assignment. Wow. So the, the team sat back, and before they launched, Lynn told Hep, the interpreter, go get what we need. And he went to, C, to <laughs> S4. They got the explosives, the debt cord. So they could really blow down the trees after the lieutenant failed. So let the young lieutenant <laughs> fail, and then they did it the right way. Of course they will. Did they recover everyone that was on that site? Do you know? Uh, yes. That was one thing that could, uh, to kind of got 
glossed over, I think. Well, yeah, in the very beginning, the people killed in the initial firefight were out. And then those who, the bodies that were at the crash site, they were able to get them out. They did. Okay, good. Yeah. I didn't, I missed that already. I'm not sure, but I was just checking to see if they got everybody out of there. I think the answer is yes. Okay. And uh, I will check later to confirm that. But with uh, Sergeant Schultz's name on the wall, yeah, which his relative saw, which which he's seen, um, that indicates that they did get him out. Okay. So, uh, but again, the MIAs have a little extra connotation on mm-hmm. the wall. But yeah. uh, just to think about that one day, and that one mission, and in fact, you know, they were gone for an American POW camp that the enemy had with Americans. Yeah. And we had intel reports about them, and, and we always had standing orders that if you have an opportunity to come across a POW camp, go for it. Yeah. Always. And so, and they, like, were, and they didn't get a chance. No. Never even got there. No. Probably because they got inserted in the wrong spot. <laughs> A little snafu on the insertion part. You know, oops, my no. bad. <laughs> yes. Well, with that, uh, any other further analysis there? Welcome back, sir. No, it's always great. I'm glad I'm back, and hopefully we can do a lot more of these, and I don't have to miss as many. And we'll Indeed. Be, we'll be good. In fact, this this week, we're uh, this recording is being done November the 17th, mm-hmm. and with this week, we, we meaning Jocko Willing Productions and Echo Charles, We'll begin posting podcasts nice. of our SOG cast. <laughs> and so we're looking forward to those on YouTube. Nice. And um, we're getting some uh, people following up, wanting to get some fan club growing here a little bit, some interest. And uh, um, we were down last week, the third group, yeah, down there for a SOG uh, Heritage Week, which nice. was the first. And it was fascinating just to be... Like when I've been with you at fifth group, yep. the same thing at third group. Yeah. Meeting these young SF guys. They're sharp. They're smarter than we ever were. They're probably faster. Yep. Just amazing. <laughs> and so they go, Yeah, hey, we're curious about you gray heads too, you know? Yeah. So it's good. It's good synergy. So uh, with that, we close out. And then um, for of interest, you know, um, Jocko podcast number 247 is an interview where we read from Lynn Black's book. Oh, awesome. And that book is just incredible. We talked about Lynn. Of course, we talked about some of the stories from across the fence and on the ground. Yeah. And uh, even though Lynn didn't mention that that much in his book, we covered that. So that's one more angle. If anybody's interested, please feel free to go to Jocko Podcast number 247. And, of course, Jocko Podcast 259 is Captain On. Yeah. Our King Bee pilot. Yep. And um, so those are the positive notes. And uh, please feel free to go back to SOGCast 1 through 20, today being number 21. And uh, we move forward here. And again, we, as always, we thank all of our firefighters, service members, Border Patrol, first responders, anybody who's helping to keep our country safe. Continue to pray for it. And then we always thank our veterans, And then for those who are not able to be here, who did not return, we offer prayers for them and hope to continue efforts to bring them home. Amen. Airborne. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. 
we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 